welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by University College London and the NIHR in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello and welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, bringing together early career researchers and leaders within the field to discuss their research hot topics and to share career tips. I'm Adam Smith, I'm the Programme Director for Dementia Researcher at University College London and it's my pleasure to be hosting this week's show. Today we're discussing inequalities in dementia care and the research of my four fantastic guests, some of whom you will have uh, known and met before. So let's meet them. Today I'm joined by regular dementia researcher blogger Dr Clarissa Glebel and joining her in our virtual studio we have James Watson, Laura Prato and Ty Caprioli, all from the University of Liverpool. Hello everybody. Hello. Hi. Why don't you all introduce yourselves properly and Ty, why don't you go first? So hi, I'm a third year PhD student and I'm based at the University of Liverpool. I have a background in physiotherapy and for the last five years I've been working in global health. Physiotherapy, do you still do that as well? Is that Do you keep that as a sideline? No, no, I haven't practised for a couple of years now. Oh, that's a shame because I've got this thing on my back. <laughs> no, I'm joking, I haven't really. Um, Laura, why don't you come next? Um, hi, my name is Laura Prato. Um, I'm a research assistant at Liverpool University. Um, previous to that, I was a, a research assistant at Newcastle University. Um, and I've spent the last uh, three to four years working on my PhD, which has looked at um, the hospital discharge process for people with dementia and their carers. Um, and in a previous life, uh, I was a, a staff nurse um, working with adults. Ah, oh, brilliant. You're, do you know what you're you're massively in demand there's a whole there's a whole push right now to encourage more nurses and healthcare professionals to to get into research so you might find yourself being a, a poster person for some of those campaigns we, we should get you back <laughs> on another show to talk about that transition from nursing to research in fact, if anybody's listening right now, Alzheimer's Society have just opened their new funding calls and there are some specific calls in there very much aimed at healthcare professionals, which uh, include a, a very early stage um, to allow you to get some research experience without committing to the PhD. So some funding for a short period to do a, a kind of PhD-like project, uh, but not necessarily go on to, and then you can apply for a PhD later if you decide. Yeah, that's that's fab. Um, it's it's good to hear about programs like that that can can help encourage healthcare professionals moving into the research world, because it you know coming from that background it gives us a, a particularly unique perspective um, that I think is valuable. Very much, and also as well, I think you're really in touch with the kind of topics that people that that you know will really help people as well with that first hand experience. Thank you, Laura. Uh, James, I don't come to you next. Yeah, of course. Lovely to be here. Uh, I'm also a final year PhD student, as you can tell by the bags under my eyes. I'm also based at the University of Liverpool and I've got 11 years experience working in public health. Brilliant. And you joined us for a webinar, I think it was at the beginning of the pandemic-ish, about your PhD plans. 
right at the very start. So I talked through the systematic review that Clarissa and I did very early in my PhD. It seems a long, long time ago now. And we should get you back to do another one on that. Yeah, more than happy to. <laughs> Clarissa. Uh, of course, everybody knows Clarissa. Clarissa has previously guest hosted shows and been a guest and she does narrated blogs for us as well. But come on, Clarissa, introduce yourself for those that only listen to the podcast. I doubt everyone knows me. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Clarissa Giebel. I'm a senior research fellow at University of Liverpool and I work at the NIHR Applied Research Collaboration Northwest Coast. So my research really looks at inequalities in dementia care. And yes, Adam, I do a lot with you guys at Dementia Researcher. But just briefly picking up on what you were saying to Laura about these Alzheimer's Society opportunities for care professionals at the ARC Northwest Coast, and I'm sure in other ARCs as well, we do host internships. So for, for example, occupational therapists, physios, um, anyone with a professional background, they can then do a research project for 12 months with us as well. So there are these opportunities around because we want to obviously merge care professionals and research much better. Brilliant. That sounds like a great opportunity. And and of course, I know, obviously, not everybody who's uh, listening today is in the UK, but I, I know that this is a problem internationally as well, that in the States as well, in Australia and Germany, there are lots of efforts to try and encourage healthcare professionals which um, to, to come into research, because you do bring that kind of unique perspective. Thank you, Clarissa. Well, thank you very much, everyone. As I mentioned earlier, today we're going to be talking about an important topic which affects many people, not just here in the UK, but of course all over the world, inequalities in dementia care. I hope I'm not preempting the discussion, but I don't think this statement is anyone anything that anyone would disagree with, that major inequalities in dementia care exist. But even that statement in itself simplifies what I suspect is a complex topic. Factors including local service provision, ethnicity, whether your care is self-funded or paid for by local authorities, um, whether you're diagnosed earlier or later in the illness must also be factors. But there are many more. And if you live outside the UK, there are even some health systems that think of dementia as a normal part of aging. So in this show, we'll hear about uh, the research of our brilliant guests, um, what they're doing on this topic, what they've discovered, and I hope we'll get some insights into what can be done about the issues. Clarissa, what can you tell us, uh, tell us about this topic? Obviously, you have my quick thoughts there in the introduction. Tell us about the topic. It's huge and completely untapped. Everyone knows about it, but I think one thing we as researchers can struggle with, at least I do, and I know lots of lived experts and care providers that we work with do, is we do the research. We show, for example, by doing reviews or primary research, by speaking to people, doing surveys, using routine data, such as James uses a lot in his work, we find that there's so many barriers to accessing care after diagnosis. So we know, for example, in England, and tend to be across the UK, actually, when someone gets a diagnosis, they're kind of lost. They might get an information pack. They might get a seven-week support group from the memory clinic if they live in the right postcode patch and get a good NHS service there. But then often nothing. And it's usually based on having an unpaid carer who is proactive and tries to navigate the system afterwards to try and find the services. Now, I've done one research recently funded by the Alzheimer's Society 
which compared the system in England with the Netherlands. And we found that in the Netherlands, there is um, a large availability of dementia care navigators. So once someone has a diagnosis, many people have someone that's not medically qualified, but that helps them is that one point of contact and tries to navigate the system. And they really can reduce inequalities and improve access and uptake to services. Now we're trying to get funding to understand this better in England, but we know from discussions that there are care navigators across England. It's just, they're not really evaluated and very different. So it it can be promising trying to find a facilitator. And I think we've tapped onto something there, but there's so much, the system isn't working well. The community poses sometimes a lot of barriers as well. As we know in different cultures, there can be stigma, for example, as well. Um, but also individual barriers. So, for example, if someone has rarer subtypes of dementia, so we know Jackie Cannon, she works with the Louis Body Society, or fellow blogger Anna uh, down from London, she does a lot with rarer subtypes. It's really difficult getting the care you need because most services are more tailored to Alzheimer's disease dementia. So there's lots going on. And we're hopefully, by working with people who have dementia or care for someone with dementia and care professionals, we're trying to find solutions much better than if we're just us researchers, because we couldn't do it just us. We need everyone together. So I'm picking up on a few issues there. First of all, that in some instances that there are services there, but not necessarily everybody has the same <clears throat> wherewithal or skill set or information to actually find them and access them, that there are also some places that have services and some places that don't, and that's amplified, particularly when you start to look at specialist services. For, Like you mentioned Anna there, who I know works in primary uh, cortical atrophy and things like that, so some of the speech therapies and things that might come with that to help communication, definitely you don't get a view that there's then consistent service provision as well. Is, is, that, is that a reasonable summary? Yes, and there's so much more. Um, and I think maybe just to flag up, and that's Thais, I'm sure, will pick up on this as well because her PhD focuses on this. But what we've witnessed during the pandemic, obviously at the start of the pandemic, kind of services shut down and then people were even more limited in accessing the care they need. And it appears that they've deteriorated faster based on our research and based on global research. But the digitalization of care can be a huge barrier for people, particularly if we think the majority of people with dementia in the older stages of their lives. So there's the digital gap and people don't really know how to use it. On top of that, having a cognitive impairment and then seeing different Zoom boxes or seeing FaceTime with your loved ones, that's really difficult to understand. So there's new barriers coming into place as well. So, yeah, so that gap's widening further. I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I was on the phone to my GP surgery this last week and all their um, recorded announcements point you towards their website. And I'm sat there listening going, what if you don't use the internet? What if you don't have the website? Um, what, what You know, I think our fallback on digital information has, has, not, uh, has definitely ensured that some people just fall behind. Um, thank you, Cl Clarissa. With, with so many issues then, and of course, limited funding and time, how do you decide what to look at? Be or, or do you just look at everything? Uh, I know I know you are 
um, from you, you publish a lot of papers, um, which suggests that you kind of can't focus on one thing. You, you look at everything because everything's so important. How do you decide what to look at? A lot of prioritization with our public advisors. So with the carers and people with dementia and the charities. That oh, that's such them. a good answer. No, well that's done. true, Adam. It's true. <laughs> that's such a good answer. It's not what's important to me. It's what's important to them. No, no that is. That is absolutely the perfect answer. But it is, I mean, we are as researchers, let's be honest, we are. Um, so sometimes the NHI has specific funding calls. For example, this summer, there was a funding call on supporting the needs of unpaid carers, general unpaid carers. So we put in an application looking at unmet mental health and addressing the inequalities that unpaid dementia carers have in accessing that. So that was on the one hand based on our research but also fitting the current priorities that are given by the funders and so it's, so it's a balance really, isn't there yeah between what the funders and of course i've just seen this week that there's a lot of new all the new uh, the certainly the nhr funding streams have all just put a, a, a focus on end of life and palliative care as well but without any focus again this is disease agnostic this is um, and we know that um, planning end-of-life care and palliative care in dementia is something that's not been researched enough. So hopefully some... I'll, I'll expect you to be applying to look at that following the funding next year. Maybe. Maybe. But I, I, have, I have a lot of discussions about this. And I'm, I know dementia obviously is a terminal illness, but for me, looking at dementia research is all about enabling people to be when they're still fit and able to to prolong that as much as possible and not necessarily look at which is equally very important to look at the really late stages and much more about let's keep fit and active and engaged when we have it and be ourselves still with the dementia that's no i i I could understand that i mean i think the end as you say i think the end stage are important because that's definitely something i think too all too often particularly in clinical research that that's that section there has been under researched um we don't know enough about how to make people comfortable how to continue to communicate particularly at the the very late stages thank you clarissa um you also into can I, i'm going to stick with you for one more question because i know that you do a lot of international collaborations how can they actually help how do they help research and people here in the in the UK, obviously, which is the system you're particularly focused on? So, for example, by doing the Alzheimer's Society study with the Netherlands, it flagged up that there is very similarities in, in terms of how people access care or don't, but also that there's something in the system that can help facilitate access. So if we hadn't done this comparison, we wouldn't have known about this, for example. I've also recently been to Australia as part of a Welcome Trust visit and really trying to understand the aged care system there. It's not dementia care system, but aged care, which in itself can be a barrier for people with young onset dementia, for example. But So now we're trying to put in some funding together with some fantastic people in Sydney and Melbourne um, and Brisbane to try and compare the system because... They are very similar and all the Australian researchers were saying we're always left out with the kind of Western country um, funding systems because of our geography. But our system is so similar to the German or English system, for example. So you can learn a lot. And one thing I wanted to flag up as well, 
is that we've just set up an interdem task force uh, which launched in Bucharest in Romania and I know uh, Adam and James we were all there um, and we launched the task force on inequalities in dementia care so it's for across Europe to really compare the system and, and different barriers but to take some learning because I think interdem is really well placed being embedded with Alzheimer's Europe to then link in with policy and decision makers because we need to take that step forward and, and look ahead, not just do research now, but how can we make a real life change or try to do it? Yeah, uh, that's brilliant. I, I think, you you know, I, all those international collaborations kind of help that, helping that levelling up of um, that exchange of information and knowledge on health systems that can benefit them is, is really a great way of working. And you give some great examples of that. Thank you, Clarissa. Um, Tice, can I bring you in now? Sorry, you've been sitting there very patiently. Thank you. So obviously this is, you're all working on health inequalities, health inequalities but um, you, you all look at specific things within that. So tell us about your research. Yeah, so I'm looking at how um, social support services has adapted during the pandemic. Um so this includes services um, such as respite care, paid home care, peer support groups, daycare centres, and I think that's non-clinical really, and how they've adapted during the pandemic. Um, and so we've seen an increase in the reliance of technology to deliver and access um, support. And... Um, as we enter this not quite post pandemic but i guess it's less of it's less featured nowadays um i think um elements of remote services will continue in some form and i think we need to be careful um to not increase the inequalities in access as um accessing technology and knowing how to use it when and as you want to is likely to to depend on some offline factors um, such as socioeconomic um, status, educational attainment, cognitive impairments, sensory impairments and the ability to get some help as well to navigate the technology. And what, what services particularly have we seen move from being a, a kind of traditional in-person service to, to being virtual? What services have made that move? Um, so this is during the pandemic, um, as we've seen um, services such as peer support groups, singing groups as well, who have moved online. Um, I've spoken to people uh, who have installed um, check-in hotlines, um, so where the providers would regularly check in with carers and unpaid uh, care, unpaid carers and people with dementia to see how they were getting on. Um, I'm currently doing some interviews now with um, some providers and um, most of their services have resumed um, to face-to-face -face now. And I suppose in some ways that's, I mean, this isn't all negative. I mean, moves, you know, you'd hope that moving some of these things online might have widened access to them, particularly those who might have had mobility issues and things before the pandemic. But um, I guess one of the, 
depends which way you look at this. But so many of those services that did move online moved on really rapidly, not necessarily in the most organised or best of ways. Um, are we seeing that some of them are rolling back to in-person but keeping an online element, or is this online part here to stay? Um, are you finding that there are ways that they can then improve that? Um, from sort of the service providers that I've spoken with, um, many of them have come back to sort of face-to-face um, delivery, um, but um, they said that um, remote services in some form could be beneficial um, in terms of quickly accessing personalised or timely care, especially in more remote settings. Um, They were also talking about how they are trying to build capacity. So um, working with devices, tablets, iPhones, with people with dementia when they are in a care centre or during face-to-face services just to increase with the familiarity and, and being more confident in using devices for future use, future public health crisis. So these services are here to say in this this new state, uh, hopefully of a bit like hybrid conferences, I guess. Hopefully if some of these services stay hybrid, it sounds like they remain more accessible through online and face-to-face, but having the online element helps build capacity. You must have added to... I know you wrote a blog for us right at the beginning of your PhD in... 2021 i think um so what, what's the last 18 months kind of taught you what have you learned since then as as this project panned out how you pretty much how you expected or are you taking a new direction um yeah um i mean time is flying so fast um and i've learned so much but at the same time i have so much more to learn which is daunting but exciting um one thing that one valuable skill that I have learned and I mean it's a skill that I'm currently still refining and would like to acquire more experience in but is to how to um, best include members of the public in research um, so I have an unpaid carer and a person living with dementia who have been um, really involved in the project um, throughout the lifespan of the project really and looking back to sort of earlier days I wasn't sure how and when to involve them and after I guess some experience reading up about it and most of all getting to know them I think we build quite a successful and uh, collaborative um, working relationship and they've added so much value and it's been a pleasure to work with yeah that partnership there well uh so you're i guess are you about 18 months away from finishing not that i want to guess (laughs) nine (laughs) nine months oh wow oh so you're definitely writing up now well i'm going to be fascinated to see what the out kind of what the general outcome is is this going to be i'm assuming that your question's been answered is it's positive that these things can support people, but you've got to be wary. Yeah, I think um, that uh, technology can help and facilitate access to some people with dementia and unpaid carers, but not everyone will benefit equally and we need to be careful 
um, to not increase inequalities in access to services, um, which may then lead to inequalities in health and sexual outcomes. Thank you, Tice. Um, and that ad talks really nicely as well. We recorded a series of three podcasts just a few weeks ago for our Tech in Dementia Week as well. Um, and actually, you wrote a blog for us uh, for that week as well. So if you're interested in finding out more about uh, Tice's work, go and have a look at um, the blog she wrote for us during Tech in Dementia Week. Thank you, Tice. James. I'm going to come to you next because you you actually wrote a blog for us at the start of your pandemic as well and you've been presenting your work recently and as you started at the start you're coming to the end of your PhD so tell us about your research and and not that we want to preempt your final publications but what what have you discovered? Yeah so hopefully submit my thesis early 2023. Uh, I'm currently doing what's meant to be the final paper from a PhD hoping to submit that very soon. And yeah, I've been presenting a lot at conferences recently um, and other events. It's kind of been the only opportunity I've had to reflect on what I've done. I think once you're when you're in a PhD, you're kind of in it. Um, but coming towards the end of it, I've been able to reflect on what I've done. Conferences have given me a great opportunity to look back and talk about what I've done. So we started by looking at a systematic review. So as Clarissa mentioned earlier, I use a lot of big data, if you like, a lot of le- electronic health records in my work trying to look at different aspects of healthcare and health outcomes and people with dementia and how social and geographic factors can impact them. So the first step was kind of to look at how other people have used similar data before, what they found and what kind of were the gaps in the literature that we could then kind of pick up and run with. So the first piece, that systematic review found a lot of inequalities in whether it was transitions into nursing and residential care, whether it was survivorship, whether it was use of healthcare and medications, a plethora of different things. And we found that age at diagnosis, sex, ethnicity, deprivation, marital status, a plethora of factors impacted those kind of outcomes. Um, and that was at that time you were focused on discharge, hospital discharge, is that right? There wasn't anything specific we were kind of focused on at that point. That kind of set up once we'd looked at the data as well. Oh, this is the area we can kind of hone in on and look towards. These can be our outcome measures and we can see how inequalities are impacting those. And um, so where is this research taking you? Having having looked at this, what, what comes next? So the next step. So we've looked at how mortality um, is unequal between different social and geographic groups. We've looked at how healthcare use, both primary and secondary is different. Now we're looking at how healthcare use over time can impact subsequent mortality risk. My hope after my PhD would be to move towards a postdoc and look at maybe different aspects, maybe incorporate some social care in. Because as we know, healthcare is one factor in dementia. There's so much going on in dementia that can have an impact on the experience that someone has so trying to incorporate more than just healthcare um into my work would be uh, a kind of great next step after this i don't know about you but in, in my work i find because because there's different stages to this aren't they having turned a spotlight on what you think is a is a problem and then gotten the evidence to say actually yes people who live their life in this way or who come from this particular background or live in this part of the world will have a worse outcome than the people who live here is how do you you've then got to 
for me, I, I can't help but jump straight to the fixing the problem. What do we do to fix this? And researching different ways to fix it. Is that something that you include in your work, or is that some is that something for Laura, who we're going to come to next? Specifically, we draw conclusions from my work. Whether that's something that can be enacted practically, whether that's in service delivery, in more systemic issues, in providing the technology or the availability of services for people to access. The next step is, as you say, that kind of interventionary measure that can actually have that legitimate impact that can improve the situation for people with dementia. So my work is more, I'd say, setting the ground or the picture for what needs to be done. My hope is that with my thesis, I can draw all the research together and say, listen, this is what needs to be done and take it to people who can have an impact, whether that's through policy or actually enacting a change. Yeah, I, I can see that. That's always the bit that's excited me. I mean, I worked on healthcare associated infections and MRSA and things like that back back in the day. And going to the places that did things well was just as important as going to the places that weren't doing so well. So you could look at the differences and then working out how to translate that and take that um, from one place to another and say, hey, look, if you just change how you work and this is what's really working in this hospital why don't you do it too that's kind of always what excited me um what what excites you what what's what excites you about your work james i'm not going to put you on the spot too much i promise getting getting feedback from people is it fills me with pride and it makes me realize that the work i'm doing is important if i can give a presentation at a conference and someone comes up to me whether that's another researcher or someone with dementia or a carer and says, that's a really interesting piece of research. Can we chat about X, Y, and Z? That's what, that's what gets me going in terms of continuing and researching dementia. Cause I feel like, Oh, it's actually having an impact. It's not just me sat behind a desk typing words yeah. on a page. It's doing something valuable. And is there anything that's frustrated or surprised? And well, and surprised you as well. Sadly, my findings haven't surprised me. I th- <laughs> haven't looked at the research. You can kind of gauge. There's I much- thought you were going to say that. I was. <laughs> yeah. But that's it's kind of what you would have expected. Yeah, that is the aspect that I think we all know. And in that aspect, dementia is no different from any other condition, but it is like the inequalities exist. Like there's no hiding from them. It's more about trying to do the right research at the right time and trying to have the right impact at the right time to change it and i think that's kind of what we're all here for Uh, and that evidence having that evidence having that statistics and knowledge is so important to inform policy which we'll we'll come back to at the end thank you james uh laura sorry sorry, absolutely go on Um, what did you have to say it, it strikes me just from from a purely researcher point of view how important it is that we use different methodologies so thais is very mixed methods she's done her own survey she's doing interviews i mixed methods but i've also done routine data and james is really heavily on using existing data that's there without um having to at this stage at least um speak to people directly so making really use of what's already collected so we can generate so much information and evidence by doing these different approaches and equally if there's then interventions out there james you could use again routine data that's already collected to see does it make a change so it's just kind of flagging up 
there can be different approaches used to address inequalities. And and the good thing about using secondary data or the data that already exists is how rapidly you can do this then. This isn't research that has to take, you know, 10 years of data collection or have that complexity that you, you use what's there. Um, uh, and particularly when you're working in the NHS, making use of that data again rather than going and asking for more, I imagine makes you more popular than others, James. Yeah, often, often when I'm delivering my work, I feel like, uh, a sore thumb, a stick out like a sore thumb because my work feels incredibly different to everyone else's um, because of that aspect of using the secondary data or large volumes of data. Um, There's been a push recently on from Health Data Research UK and the NOHR Research Design Service and in the US as well from um, Alzheimer's Association to highlight how just how much data is there not just in these longitudinal studies but from healthcare systems um i think we've got a an article in the resources section on dementia researcher website but if you're just starting your phd and you're still finding your feet on what data you can get and where from um we, there are resources out there do drop us a line in the chat below and we can help sign pushies to some of that because i know that that can be a bit of a daunting task at the start and then not only finding the data but getting your hands on it as well well, we're, um, do you know what? That's a whole different topic for another podcast about your your ethics and how you get your hands on that data, James. We'll we'll invite you back. Thank you, um, Laura. You've been very patient. Thank you very much. Tell us about your work. I've been saving the best to last. Oh. Not not really. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'll pick up on, on what Clarissa was saying about how do you how do you pick a, a topic and what you focus on. Um, and, and for my PhD, um, I focused on well-being um, and, and during the hospital discharge and, and for people with dementia and their carers and looking at, at what that would look like and, and how that could be supported. And, and the way we, we picked that as a topic to focus on was... Um, I, at the time, had a supervisor who was working within the NHS um, and was working with uh, nurses, particularly uh, discharge professionals. Um, and that was a that was a topic that, that they felt was really neglected um, and that could that could use more work. So that's kind of one way that you can you can choose to focus. You can sort of ask professionals who've, who've got that experience um, in their professional lives around, you know, where do we need to be focusing our efforts? And then at the beginning of my PhD, I also um, consulted with a with a, a big PPI group um, and spoke to different carers about their experiences. So I was really led by by quite often the negative experiences that they'd had um, and and areas with, that they felt really needed to be addressed within research and and areas that needed uh, there was a focus for for change that was required there. Um, so so yes, as I was saying, I I, I looked at, at well being and. And within policy documentation, well-being is a term that, that's quite often used um, and it's used in NICE guidance from 2015 and 2016 around the discharge process. And even though we've got definitions from the CARE Act, you know, those definitions need a lot of work and they need a lot of contextualising um, and they need a lot of carer input, which hasn't necessarily always happened um, because it, it's all well and good saying that, you know, you'll often see in policy that that there needs to be a focus on the well-being of carers and patients with dementia. But if there's quite a limited evidence base qualitatively as, as to what that looks like, um, that's not always that helpful uh, when, when it comes to practice. So uh, I interviewed um, carers and professionals, so doctors, nurses, consultants, uh, 
OTs, um, social workers, um, and also uh, carers um, about what they felt would support their their well-being when when their loved ones were leaving hospital. Um, and in the end, what happened to me was uh, I ended up doing my data collection in 2021 during the pandemic, during the lockdown. Um, so my project was conceived before the pandemic, but then what happened was the policy context changed quite significantly. So that, um, I mean, the government, um, and it was Matt Hancock at the time, issued policy in kind of March 2020, April 2020, August 2020, all focused on um, when people with dementia were, were leaving hospital. Um, some of that policy has been found unlawful, of course, this year, um, particularly around admissions to uh, nursing homes. This was before there was any any testing taking place. But basically, what my PhD ended up reflecting in many ways was the impact that that, that policy had um, on the well-being of, of people with dementia when they were in hospital and when that discharge was being planned. So a lot of that was around, you know, there were very long isolation periods um, and visiting was very restricted. So it was very difficult to plan the discharge process if you, you couldn't actually see your loved one. It was very difficult for professionals to work together interprofessionally and, and plan the discharge process. There was quite limited service provision in the community. Um, what was available was often online. Um, and as um, Tace was saying earlier, that meant that you had quite a, quite strong inequalities because obviously for people with dementia, and particularly if, if you're talking about advanced dementia, using technology can be very challenging. And it was very challenging in the hospital context. Um, it was difficult for professionals to access um, and, and work with, with people with dementia. So, you know, physiotherapists um, and specialist nurses really have problems accessing people. Um, and it was very difficult to know what services were going to be available. Um, and it was difficult for relatives. Um, it was very difficult for them to access any kind of information. At the time, you know, they were often left ringing wards. They weren't able to visit. Um, and certainly my research has shown that there was an impact on, on well-being and around dignity um, for, for people with dementia, because if you couldn't access them in the hospital space, you know, it was very difficult for them to, to have access to things like their own clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is a complex issue. I mean, I know that discharge as a whole is is an area that the NHS is has been forever trying to fix, right? I mean, this is not just in the UK system, but I mean, I've worked in the NHS. I'm not going to say how long ago because it'll reveal my age but um discharge delayed discharges um ooh, that awful term bed blocking has come up hasn't it over the years which newspapers would have used um that it that it's an issue fundamentally because that transition um from in hospital to going back out again is a complex process as a result people stay in long hospital longer than they necessarily need to and the if the back door is blocked the front door can't let as many people in and so this it trickles through the whole health system um and so i, I imagine interestingly looking at well-being within that system you can't feel that there's going to be a, a great deal of well-being in what is this this slightly broken complex system of uh, so what was your de kind of definition of well-being? And I love that you kind of looked at that quite holistically as well and not just at the, um, I guess we'd still call people patients at that stage, um, not just at patients, but how did that, it's good that you looked at that. How did you, how did you come to that, that process? Yeah, um, 
I mean, what was, what was, I knew that I, I wanted to look at well-being because it, it is an area, like you said, that, that often gets gets kind of ignored. It's um, quite, yeah, sorry, I, I wasn't very clear on my question because it's quite focused on the, the, like, the process at that point, isn't it? I think there's less concern about people in it. It's just moving people through the system. Um, yes, and that was even, even more so during COVID, obviously, when policy particularly was just around discharging people as quickly as possible. So you ended up with quite rushed discharge processes and, you know, the, the policy that existed before the pandemic was was very clear that carers should be at the center of all decision making um and that well-being should be specifically considered and, and like you're saying when i did my systematic review as part of my phd it was very clear that that often wasn't happening and that the, that it was being driven by the needs of the system so the needs of the hospital um and very much the kind of care availability in the community the, the um, pandemic and, really you know, something from my system yeah the pandemic really did skew your research massively there kind of because that is if when you want to look at the pandemic's impact on the nhs that part that zeroing on that little bit of the system was massively affected because i can see as you said not knowing whether physio services those traditional services you would have referred to that weren't necessarily great or consistent before or were were busy and stressed and hard to access trying to then to refer into them when you're not even sure they still exist anymore is difficult so your research must have been really skewed by that yeah and and uh, you were saying service availability there was all sorts of problems around um people being on furlough there was a lot of people with covid in the community a lot of people isolating people isolating within the community within the hospital um there was some of my participants talked about massive backlogs in terms of not being able to access basic equipment like a walking stick or a wheelchair or a commode so it made it, you know it made discharging very very difficult and it made there was also kind of all sorts of problems around the fact that there was so much fear created by the media that people became very afraid of of, of nursing home placements as well so there was a lot of issues whereas traditionally you know different professionals talked about this you would have a discharge meeting well they couldn't take place um and people talked to me about having discharge meetings in car parks um following lateral flow tests and having to really fight for them um but also things things around you know people's relatives were it was probably a point where they might have benefited from a care home or a nursing home placement but but people were very very reluctant and um, particularly pre-vaccine um and and people were very reluctant to have carers come into the house as well pre-vaccine, so it was it was very very difficult. It was it was difficult for professionals to work together because they couldn't be in the same room. It was difficult to get kind of contextual information on on patients because um, you know historically you would have visitors on a ward, you would have multiple input into for professionals trying to see the picture of of what someone was like in the community, but you couldn't access. You, you couldn't, you know, sort of meet people's uncles and aunties. You couldn't do home assessments. So it was a really, really challenging time. It was really challenging for well, uh, in terms of well-being and, and, and well-being just wasn't really considered no. um, because it couldn't be. Um, policy regulations didn't really allow. But 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 what was great about it was because and, and the carers and, and, and professionals were really united in kind of their, their, their approach to this. They both said to me that they saw that there was a greater need for well-being to be really um centralized within the process and they could see that because of the pandemic and they could see kind of the outcomes that were happening because they weren't able to prioritize things like respite which wasn't really available or community activities um 
so it, it sort of focused people's minds a lot more on on, on the value of well-being, which won't necessarily have been there before. And does that um, does that give you an opportunity a, now to sorry. look to look more? Obviously, the the pandemic, as as you say, we'd like to think we're mostly through that now. To to give you that nice because actually it's, it, what you've stumbled into there kind of is a bit of an exciting opportunity to kind of look at what happens when the system's really broken compared to what it it's like when it's not although albeit that it's in recovery still rather than a a normal service and is this maybe a chance do you think to to reset and, and to to start afresh with knowing things like the outcomes of your study to see what what it's like when it's really bad yes absolutely and 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 like i said what was really encouraging was that that the professionals that I talked to so different doctors and, and specialist nurses and OTs all all had the same all had the same kind of insight and they they all wanted to move away from a process that was driven by hospital assessments and hospital needs towards towards a process that is more focused on the care and the person with dementia which is which is what it's supposed to be um, and what policy argues for but but hasn't unfortunately been been able to happen. Um, you know, one of the key things that that you know that, that I argue in my thesis that, that the pandemic showed was that risk has always been a massive driving factor of the discharge process, um, and fears around risk. And, and by that I mean fears that somebody will fall. Um, often often is is a very central factor to when they're making discharge decisions. Um, and a lot of carers talk to me about the fact that they don't feel involved in decision making. They feel that it's a it's a kind of process where those decisions are made based on risk assessments and then essentially carers are kind of brought in to, to say we've sort of decided that, that that your relative is not safe to go home um but a lot of professionals had an insight into that and, and the need to move away from risk dominating the process and instead kind of embrace risk um in order to enable well-being so if somebody does want to go home you know, how do we facilitate that and, and looking at how that can be done rather than kind of making a, a decision that that some of the professionals did identify was was probably due to discrimination some of the time around whether somebody is capable of going home and, and whether they could go home with the correct support. So tell me, this is probably a qu- last question on this, I promise, because I just find this topic fascinating. It's my background. But um, James and Laura, I can't help but think that somewhere exists some great examples and policy documents that define what a great discharge process would look like for everybody that that can't we can't have not thought of that before somewhat somewhere there'll be a great example a perfect gold standard model of what a perfect discharge would be look like does, are we saying that that doesn't exist or it does exist it's just that we haven't got the time or the system to that facilitates that I think um, it's difficult to have a, a defined. Uh, I argue in in my thesis that that we need a roadmap for discharge that 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 shifts to more towards. Have you thought about going into government? At the centre. <laughs> Road. <laughs> no. Local but, politics. Um, I I, I feel if you're making roadmaps, you definitely make a great politician. But the, the difficulty is that the needs are very, very individualised. So, you know, an example from my PhD is discharge planning meetings, which are, you know, considered kind of gold standard and, and that a discharge planning meeting is a great thing. And it can be. Um, and, and I came across examples of, of brilliant discharge planning meetings where 
the carer felt that they were treated with equity, that their, their viewpoint was heard and that the decision was made as a, as a group and that risk was tolerated. So it wasn't a kind of we've decided um, that, that, that this person can't go home. But then I also heard examples of discharge meetings where there was an inequality of arms and, and that carers actually felt bullied and they, they went to a discharge meeting and felt that they weren't listened to. Um, so it's very difficult to, to, to point to a specific. It has to be a kind of holistic, person-centred process um, supported by professionals who, who, who are really committed Absolutely. to that. Um, and as Clarissa said at the start, you've also then got to have the services consistently delivered beyond the, the secondary care setting, the, the hospital setting, to actually discharge people to, to maintain that well-being. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Um, so let me, I'm just going to have a bit of a, I'm going to try and recap. So we've picked up at the start, as we, as we said back with Clarissa half an hour ago, that, um, that inequalities exist across the system that these are perpetuated by uh, throughout somebody's life. I mean, these healthcare systems that um, potentially start, the problems start much earlier on than before we suddenly get to hospital or when development develops. It can be influenced by your gender, your race, where you live, and, and also the service provision in your area. And that potentially gets worse as you get, older and there's this new increasing potential digital divide between people that I think we're very aware of but uh, during the pandemic systems have also rapidly changed and innovated in some ways good to be able to ensure we can continue to provide services but also potentially bad ways um, that have that have cut some people off further and that no surprises really this isn't I think is specific UK issue, but there are challenges and we haven't really talked about money today, but I can't help but feel that money and the costs of social care, the costs of these services in the UK staffing them as well. Um, we know that there are um, problems with employing the right professionals um, to, to keep maintain some of these services, that all these things exist. And this brilliant week work at Liverpool has put spotlights on it brought these into papers, published these papers, and it's time to to do something about that now. Right, let's move on. Okay, it's almost time to finish, but before we do, I have some last few questions just to help others who are starting out in the field and to, to try and wrap this, this topic up. Because this is a challenge. I mean, we're talking about this in the third person here but of course what's at the center of this are people who are living every day through this you know navigating through this health system living with the dementia and having the frustrations and living with these health inequalities um and care inequalities that we've talked about so uh, you've had to work many and most of you've said that you've had people involved with dementia and living with dementia and carers involved in your process how do you remain resilient during this what i imagine is quite a challenging topic uh, uh clarissa why don't you go first how do you personally remain resilient in this i get incredibly frustrated and i get increasingly frustrated with the system issues and the social care system in this country so as you know it's a bit different in germany i'm not saying it's great in germany but it works better to support those that are much more vulnerable and from much more deprived backgrounds there and so i know that 
certain systems can work and the Nordic systems can work. So I'm just, it is frustrating, but then it's also about working with all these lived experts more and being much more of an activist. I, I feel, I feel the, not the older I get, but the more I do research, I feel much more like I'm becoming an activist into trying to make a change outside. Is of that a good thing? Are you, are you supposed to remain neutral as a, well, is it well, is it the topic? Do you need to go look at some working system? Well, you do that with your international. I mean, some of your international work. Yeah, but I feel, I feel we have a responsibility as researchers to not just share the. I mean, this is hard facts. We know things aren't working. It's not like we're making them up and we're biased in that. We know things aren't working. So, in addition to trying to find interventions and real life solutions, we need to make we need to shout out about it as well and give people their voice. I, I think. I don't know. I feel more and more that's our responsibility because very little seems to change. Yeah. Yes, so I'm finding that balance between publishing your paper, but then actually making sure somebody reads it. We're talking about this a lot at the moment is, is this implementation science about that, you know, where's this, this cutoff between doing the research. If you develop a new intervention, for example, and then getting the costs and getting that through into services, I guess this is all, implementation is an issue here which is not so much in you want to create a new service but you want people to pay attention to the facts you've found and the research you've published D uh, james uh, ty laura do you have any tips for remaining resilient on these difficult challenging topics i was kind of going to well continue what clarissa said to be honest remaining a bit hard-nosed i think um Something very British is the fact that we like to moan, and a collective moan feels better than just you doing it on your own. Um, but not just doing research for the sake of research. I, like, I'm sure all of us here don't do the research for it to sit on a shelf and gather dust. We do it to have an impact, so the way to have an impact is to be hard-nosed, is to say it like it is, and to present where the issues are, whether that's a funding issue, whether that's central government, whether that's local government, whether that's service delivery or whatever it may be, it's about making the point. And if we don't make the point, then nothing will change. And you've just hit on a topic that I'm going to write a blog on over Christmas about how to disseminate research findings in a beyond just publishing. I think it's an important topic. Thank you, James. Okay, so right now the um, health secretary is probably listening to this podcast because he, he you know, listens all the time. No, he doesn't really. Um, but, but let's just pretend for a second that there are policymakers across the world listening to this podcast. What would you really like them to to hear? What would you like to say to policymakers, um, Laura? Listen, oh, sorry. Oh, oh, sorry. No, go on, Clarissa. You, you. No, I put Laura on the spot. Listen to the evidence that they're out there, and I think it's for us again. It's our duty as researchers to make papers that can be 10 pages long really accessible for anyone to really quickly read it because policymakers in particular are very busy, make it short, concise, easily accessible, but also maybe to, um, what's the word for it, um, contextualize that with more lived experiences. So maybe next to that, have a carer or a person with dementia do a little blob on this is how it is for me. This is the evidence that we found and this is how it is for me. Maybe getting it more engaging. Just to push back a little bit, if I was a policymaker, 
Um, I think also researchers could make it easier for me, certainly, by creating those kind of, you know, rather than publishing your results in a paper that's a little bit hard to read and has got seven pages of complexity to it, I think researchers can also do more to bring out the 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 main points but also as well to highlight what you can do about it i think highlighting issue you know it's always one of those things and you're just bringing me a problem actually i need you to bring me bring me a solution and and i think quite often whether you're looking in social care or in local organization of nhs services and things like that what you actually want is somebody to make your life easy and bring you something that says look here is a here is a solution to a problem here is this is what it's going to cost. This is how you can do it. It makes my life easier to go away and go, oh, great, I can see that. Um, because I think um, nobody wants to provide bad care or bad services or or have these. Every, nobody would say that these inequalities are right or fair. But I think, I think coming together to try and help and deliver them and improve them is the the right thing to do thank you very much this has been really interesting um i'm afraid it is all we have time for today but um thank you very much james ty laura clarissa have you got any final points you'd like to make i think you're doing an amazing job here adam just to kind of flag it up because doing all these podcasts as well is another way of disseminating work in a really easy format so that's great well, um, what I what I one of the things that we always get back on the podcast is is that um, because it's not just focused in on care research or social care that we also look at the basic lines and things. I think it's really important that that everybody working in dementia research, whether you're a fundamental scientist or a biologist or a care researcher, if everybody has kind of a bit of understanding of people's work, it it brings that opportunity together for us to work together. I'm not making much sense. I should add, I've got COVID right now. So if I'm rambling on, I'm going to use that as an excuse, not just because I'm my usual rambling self. Um, I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. But if you'd like to come on the show and discuss your own research, no matter what field you're working in or wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. We have plans for a new series where mentees interview their mentors about their careers coming in the new year as well. So if your mentor is truly inspiring and you'd like to take a turn at hosting your own show, do get in touch. I'd like to thank our guests, the incredible Dr. Clarissa Glebel, the wonderful Ty Caprioli, and the ever-dependable James Watson, and the amazing Laura Prato. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Adam Smith, and you've been listening to the Dementia Researcher Podcast. Please remember to leave us a review and let us know what you think of the show. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association. Bringing you research, news, career tips and support.